0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: The following episode of Cooking Issues has been sponsored by Acme Smoked Fish. Located in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, Acme has been a mainstay in New York's culinary landscape for over 55 years. Using old world recipes, Acme produces the finest smoked salmon, whitefish, and sable that discerning palates demand. For more information on where to find Acme, Blue Hill Bay, or Ruby Bay products, please visit www.acmesmokedfish.com. Dave, you're
2: on. <laughs> Cooking Issues, Cooking Issues Radio, Dave Arnold coming to you live from Berlin, Germany, where I'm at the Berlin Cocktail Conference. I have Nastasha sitting uh, in the studio in Brooklyn. He's there, Nastasha? Hi, Dave. Hey, yeah, so uh, this, uh, this radio show is being literally phoned in. I'm phoning it in from Berlin on my iPhone, so if I click or pop... Uh, you'll know you'll know why and uh, Natasha, thanks so much for putting uh phil collins on as our intro music today uh <laughs> they couldn't
1: find your, so- <laughs> your song
2: yeah so you know everyone likes <laughs> the phil collins every now and again so that's that's uh everyone, that's perfect.
1: everyone has two ears and a heart dave
2: Exactly, exactly. (laughs) All right, all right. So listen, so uh, Nastasha, can you read the numbers since I don't have it in front of me and for some reason I cannot commit it to memory?
1: Yes, if you want to call in and ask questions to Dave, who's in Germany, the number is 718-497-2128. 718-497-2128.
2: I would really like it if someone from Germany called New York to ask me a question (laughs) while I'm in Germany. We'll see if we can can get that going. Um, And we'll be here uh, live for the next uh, 45 minutes or so. And uh, meanwhile, I'm going to take some email questions. So, uh, one of our uh, favorite uh, blog readers, Schinderhannes, wrote actually from Germany, but not from Berlin. Uh, and he says, uh, uh, wait, wait, where's Oh, he said, why are the two most uh, important beverages in Germany, beer and apple juice, beer for adults and apple juice for kids, used so rarely in cocktails? And do you have any good recipes for these ingredients? Schinderhannes is an excellent question. Um, The problem with apple juice in cocktails is that apple juice is relatively diluted. So most cocktails that are produced in bars, and therefore also most recipes that are written for them, are are based on the idea that you're going to make a drink and then dilute it with, uh, you know, chill it and dilute it with ice. Now, the the problem is is that if you're using um, apple juice, by the time it's chilled uh, and diluted, it's just much too watery. So you don't have – you're not going to have enough uh, uh, alcohol in it, and you're also not going to have enough flavor of the, of the apple juice. And so I think that's the reason why um, there aren't that many drinks using it. Now, of course, the solution to this is to, um, is to chill your uh, drinks beforehand – Right, or mix them cold and then chill them down so that when they're mixed together, you don't have to dilute it a lot with uh, with ice. A really good technique is to actually freeze the ice cubes in, uh, freeze the apple juice into ice cubes mm-hmm. and then shake with the frozen uh, apple juice. And this way, as it's chilling and diluting, you can get it really cold, the same as a standard cocktail, about minus 7 Celsius. But uh, as it's diluting, it's diluting with apple juice. Uh, and this technique works really well and it's something we do a lot. I like... Um, I like uh, apple juice and whiskey. I think it's really good. When we use apple juice, though, we're often making our own apple juice, and we'll, uh, we'll juice it with uh, some ascorbic acid as an antioxidant so that the apple juice stay, stays cl- uh, clear. I mean, sorry, it stays green and, or, or yellow if it's a yellow apple or red if there's a lot of red skin. And then, uh, but it doesn't oxidize, the important part. And then often we'll clarify it. Uh, and, and mix this. So we do a lot of work with that. We'll, we've done apple and tequila. We've done apple and, and bourbon. Most of the time, we, we're only doing the apple juice in the spirit because we tend to use very high-quality uh, apples, uh, and we really want to show the flavors that, that, uh, of the specific apple. Most apple juice, once it's allowed to oxidize and clarify. Traditionally, uh, the taste uh, differences are muted somewhat. So that's one of the reasons we like to do it fresh. And uh, some of our favorite apples are uh, Ashmead's Kernel, which is an Old English variety, uh, I shot the Spitzenberg, which is an old American variety, um, but you know, you, you know any local variety that you like, assuming it has you know a high enough acid balance, is a good acid sugar balance. You can use, and of course you can correct acid sugar with uh, malic acid, which is the acid from apples, or you can uh, you know obviously you can add more more sugar to it. Uh, with regards beers, there is like a, there are a whole bunch of cocktails based on beers. They're just not seen as often. Uh, uh, these days, like you know, shandies, we do a lot of really old school hot beer cocktails where uh, we'll use uh, like a beer, uh, usually an ale, usually not a lager, usually an ale, and uh, and like either a brandy. Uh, or sometimes uh, a whiskey, and then we'll flame it using uh, our Red Hot Poker, which can basically, uh, it can ignite the drink. You don't really need to ignite it, but you need to get uh, something hot, like a hot stone or, or just a very hot uh, implement with it, like with a, with a lot of thermal wallop to it to give it a kind of burned flavors uh, that are really characteristic of those old-style drinks. Uh, And I really like to do that. I don't have any good modern beer recipes uh, off the top of my head for cold cocktails, but they've become extremely uh, popular in certain bars over the past uh, three or four years uh, in the States. And I I think you're going to see a return to more beer-based cocktails in the future, especially in restaurants that have... Um, uh, they don't have a liquor license, right? So they can't serve liquor, but they can serve uh, wine or beer. And so these places do a lot of interesting work with wine-based cocktails and uh, beer-based cocktails. But unfortunately, I don't have any uh, good recipes right off the bat. Uh, What do you think, Stodd? Do you think that's a good answer or no? Yeah, I think that's a good answer.
1: Have you been drinking a lot of beer out there?
2: Uh, I've had some beer. So there's a characteristic beer from Berlin called, uh, Berliner Weiss, uh, that is, uh, they sweeten it. The one I had with, uh, Woodruff, uh, syrup, so it's green. It's just like big goblet of green beer. And it's a little sweet. So I couldn't drink a lot of them, but whenever I go somewhere, I like to try the characteristic, uh, beverage of the area. But the, the person I ordered from it told me that it was, it was mainly a ladies drink, but I did enjoy it. I did enjoy it. So it mm. was good, and I have been <laughs> drinking, drinking quite a
3: bit of beer. We have a caller. Um, Oh, we have a caller? Yes. Hello, caller. You're on the air. Hi there. I'm Colin Gore. I'm living down in Washington, D.C. And uh, recently I've been trying to make, I've been making sweetgrass vodka for quite a while. I've got a sweetgrass patch. I've just been usually just soaking it for a couple of days. But when I saw the uh, method used with the EC canister, I tried right. doing some with, uh, you know, pressure pressurizing with some nitrous oxide and trying to sort of blast some of the fresh, grassy flavor out, but something kind of curious happened. Uh, when I did it, I used, you know, same concentrations I usually do uh, and let it pressurize it with two chargers, uh, let it sit for a couple minutes, about between two and three minutes, let the gas out, and it didn't look too heavily colored. It was, like, very very lightly, so so I let it sit overnight in the fridge, like you do, and, you know, it kind of looked the emerald thing that it usually has, but it's now been, like, maybe a week later, and whereas the regular stuff will be, you know, still this kind of emerald color, this stuff has turned very tawny, very almost like a watered-down coffee or tea color. And and what was Wait a I couldn't hear the very first part. What was that? What was it? What was the flavor again? I couldn't hear. Uh, sweetgrass.
2: Oh, oh, sweetgrass. Okay.
3: Um, yeah, kind of like the uh, thing all that.
2: I mean, I would bet, right, like my guess, just off the beginning,
3: and, and I don't know whether that the, the main question. Is the main question about the color? Yeah, about the color. Also, the flavor profile is a little different. There's, like, usually it's kind of very vanilla-y and grassy. There's still the kind of like grassy vanilla thing, but there's also a more... I don't know, almost like brandy cherry thing that's not usually there. Uh, so I was just wondering if, you know, it's kind of the chlorophyll is getting blasted apart and that's what caused it to change color or if you've got any, you know, ideas about what might be going on.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would almost guarantee that you're breaking some cells when you're doing it and thereby releasing some enzymes and the enzymes are getting to work uh, busy oxidizing and creating some of those brown flavors. I mean, that would be my guess. Now I think that, you know, uh, it's it's definitely tr- so. Like if, for instance, when I'm doing an herb that I know has a tendency to go brown, when I do it, mm-hmm. I'm I'm try to be as careful as I can and use not bru- uh, herbs that aren't bruised and also to okay. not um, and to not shake it real hard. I just swirl it around when I use those because I want to minimize breakage. Uh, yeah. Okay. But also, uh, you know, we've had some luck, but not great luck. Doping it with a little bit of an antioxidant. The problem is, it's also then going to add acid, so it's going to change the flavor. Like ascorbic acid, you, you yeah, could okay. use sodium uh, metabisulfite instead as an antioxidant, but I haven't, haven't tried it, so I can't talk about its efficacy. Now, the difference in flavor between the two, I think you have two different things going on, uh, and I, again, I can't really judge which one is uh, is working. And by the way, for people who don't know what we're talking about, go on to cookingissues.com dot com and look up, uh, I guess, infusion. Uh, and I, ISI or EC, and you can see it's this technique where we do very rapid infusions of flavor in uh, in whipped cream makers. And uh, you know, for me, it's really it's really a good technique because it allows us to do something um, that we would normally use a vacuum machine to do, which is very expensive. And you can do it, you know, fairly easily. And you can do it at home. You can do it in a bar. It's it's friendly, um, but. Uh, the flavor, t- the flavor profiles are different than they are with the traditional infusion that takes a long time, and so I think um, it, not necessarily better or worse, just different. So th- the, I think it's true that you're going to extract different flavors using this technique uh, than you would. Um, using a traditional uh, longer technique, yeah, right? I think, so like that. I think the longer the product stays yeah. in there, the less it, the difference is going to be. But I also think you're probably getting some flavor change based on the oxidation. Don't you think so? I think that the actual oxidation is going to change the flavors. What do you think?
3: Yeah, yeah, I think so. But it, this is almost, you know, in a, in a pleasant way. So it was a little bit, I was just curious if, uh, yeah, no, I guess it could be something enzymatic too, kind of breaking breaking things down a little different. But uh Right.
2: Well as soon as something oxidizes, right? I mean that's the thing I think people don't people so when you add something like a, like an antioxidant, like ascorbic acid for instance, too, and we're talking a little bit about this in the in the last uh, question, when you add something like this uh, you know, yes, you're preventing oxidation, which is a visual cue that something's going on, but it also radically changes the taste. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why apple juice, for instance, doesn't, brown apple juice doesn't taste like fresh apples is because it's gone through this oxidation procedure. It's not just that it's been heated, although that right, also changes right, right. it, and it's not just that it's been clarified, but the actual oxidation where it goes brown is, is changing the, the characteristic flavor of a fresh apple into the characteristic flavor of the of the apple juice. So I think you might so have some of that some... going on. And I think you also might have uh, just perhaps a different extraction of things from it in general, you know?
3: Yeah. So are there some other uh, instances where you notice that oxidation has maybe actually like improved flavor? Cause, uh, or is it generally uh, huh. a negative trend that you've...
2: Uh, I mean, I think it depends. People really like um, uh, apple juice. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so oxidized apple juice, I mean, it's not what I'm shooting for, so I tend to go uh, try to make it taste as fresh as possible. But, again, oxidation there is not uh, bad. It's It's just different. We normally associate it as being negative because we're used to uh, we're used to it being a negative characteristic, and for instance, in things like pesto, and I think most herb oxidation, like like basil uh-huh. oxidation and cilantro oxidation, has very characteristic flavors, and we we're, we're, we kind of shun those flavors, and so it takes on a bad name. But there's nothing inherently bad about oxidation. I think I might yeah, have told okay. this story once on the on the cooking issues before. But I'll say it again real quick. There is a, you know, I'm pretty sure I said it, but, that, you know, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, which I won't use their name, but it's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, they, uh, they're characteristically oxidized. The fats oxidize a little bit in the peanut butter, mm-hmm. and that's the characteristic taste of the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. And If you actually put oxygen scavengers in the packaging so that it doesn't oxidize a little bit, nobody thinks it tastes like a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup anymore, and they don't want to buy it. So it's... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. So oxidation, it, it, you know, it's it's all in the eye of the of the eater, or in the mouth of the eater, I guess. Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah.
2: Anyway, I hope that answered your question. Thanks for calling in, and uh, you just yeah. post something to the blog if you have more results with the sweetgrass
3: because I'm interested. We haven't used any uh, sweet grass infusion, so uh, so yeah, thanks, yeah. Uh, for I'll. In. I'm uh. Once I have some more systematic stuff, I'll put it together and show you guys. But thanks for helping. Very good. Thanks. Thank you. Uh all right. We should take a break. We man.
2: have what? We should take a break. All right, so we're going to our first break <laughs> and we're going to come back live from our our two continent cooking issues from New York and from Berlin. You're on Hey, welcome back to Cooking Issues. Coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday, even when I'm in Germany. Uh, so we're coming to you live as, uh, like I said, Stasi's on the studio in Brooklyn. Uh, at Roberta's Pizza, and uh, I am in the Berlin Cocktail Conference in Berlin. So, uh, Duncan from Sacramento writes in. Oh, I, by the way, call in your questions. We're still here for about another half hour or so. Nastasha, give him the it number.
1: 718 is 718-497-2128, 718-497-2128.
2: All right, Duncan writes in from Sacramento and says he's been trying to make a stable foam from beer. So he's had a couple of beer questions. If I like this, all these questions are working together today. Uh, I think it could be interesting to do a beer mousse or deconstruct a black and tan. However, I've not been able to get a dense and stable foam. Peckin hasn't worked, and I'm not sure gelatin would set up well in the presence of alcohol. Now, Duncan, if you're looking to do a traditional mousse-style uh, texture with gelatin, I guarantee you gelatin will set uh, the beer fine. First of all, beer's not that high in alcohol, and so it will affect it a little bit. You might have to use a little more gelatin than you would normally use, but it's definitely going to work. I've done gilets of champagne many times with gelatin, and, and it works fine. If you want to make a, not a mousse, but just something that's dense and foamy, uh, get a really good result. Uh, I will steer you to the same technique as Sam Mason, uh, formerly of uh, Atlas WD50 and Taylor Restaurant, and currently has a bar. His name, for some reason, because I'm in Germany, escaped me. He uses a product called Methocell uh, F50, which is a methylcellulose product that is, uh, basically can whip anything into a, a mousse. Uh, it's not a mousse, really, a foam, but like dense. You know, not quite as dense as shaving cream, but much denser than your normal foams that you make, uh, like an egg white. It's like an egg white meringue. In fact, we use it to dehydrate. Uh, foams into meringues, uh, and I think we have a recipe somewhere on the blog, don't we, Stasi, for that, yeah, for yeah. F50 and the hydrocarbon problem? Yes. yes. Uh, and so and so he famously made a Guinness foam using uh, Methylcell F50, uh, and it makes a nice, dense, stable, um, like a little bit thicker than the head on a Guinness, but like of that kind of nature, and so it, it, that's a really good technique. Another one that you can use uh, if you don't like uh, uh you can buy Methylcell, I think, a, a retail. I think at the Sanctuaire's website and also Terra Spices website, and um, some people have a little bit of a gripe with methylcell because uh, it's one of the only things we use. It's not, you know, quotes, all natural. It's not a chemical that is natural. It's modified cellulose pro- uh, product. So then uh, people have a problem with that, sometimes we'll use uh, something called VersaWhip, which is basically, uh, they have a soy-based VersaWhip, which is soy protein uh, as a whipping agent, and they have uh, a casein, milk-based protein VersaWhip. But you can also get, at, I think, at both of those suppliers, and those can whip things into a denser foam. I find VersaWhip to be difficult to use. I think Methacel F50, and remember, F50, don't get a different Methacel. F like Frank 50 uh that one i think is really easy to use it whips up like an egg white uh you might have to add a little bit of a thickener uh like i don't know xanthan gum or maltodextrin or something to the to the beer to get it to warm up nicely but it uh, should work um dave we have a caller so oh we have a caller yes uh all right caller, you're on the air
4: hello my name is derek i call i wrote in a couple weeks ago about a uh question about um velvety meats Oh yeah, yeah. Anyway, thanks a lot for uh, the insight. Yeah, that that, that was great. Um, I had another question I wanted to ask about today, which is you mentioned a uh, a week or two ago something I've heard before about um, cooking sous vide. That as long as you sear it, you're basically safe because the inside of the meat is basically sterile. But I had In to give general. this a second thought last week when I uh, got a piece of monkfish and found some worms crawling out of it. I wanted to ask about um, dealing with parasites and if you had some because uh, those obviously you know, aren't only on the surface, but I know they're easier to kill than a lot of bacteria. But I wonder if you could address safety issues with those and how you might go about using, doing it.
2: All right, that's an interesting question. You pick monkfish, which obviously is full of parasites, also codfish full of parasites. Uh, worms, I mean, uh, luckily, I don't know about monkfish, but uh, the ones in, in codfish aren't going to infect you, but they're incredibly disgusting. You know what I mean? Uh, and the... Uh, you know, and in general, but the, the the same thing holds true for traditional cooking and sous vide there. So, and so our discussion is basically when you're when you're cooking something sous vide, often we don't cook things um, enough to pasteurize them, enough to kill all the bacteria that's present, right? Uh, and the reason we don't is often if you cook something that long, the texture can be. Uh, ruins. right? So that's true on uh, certain beef muscle cuts like uh, uh, tenderloin, like fillet. I think if you cook it long enough to pasteurize it, or temperatures where you're going to pasteurize it, that you can you can damage the uh, the texture. But it's definitely true on fish. You really it's very hard to cook most fish so that they're pasteurized because uh, you don't ever really want to get them in general up to the temperatures that could pasteurize them. And even when you do, you don't want to hold them there that long. Exceptions like striped bass can take those kind of temperatures, but uh, so. Uh, so you don't tend to pasteurize them. Now, on something like a parasite, like codfish or a monk, the, the fact of the matter is that when you're doing a traditional cook, you're also probably not getting the internals up high enough to, to be any different than you would in sous-vide because uh, but you are overheating. You are really searing the outside and killing it. So I think my point with safety in sous-vide is that uh, I don't think it's any less safe than the traditional method. Does that make sense at all or no? No,
4: that makes perfect sense. Um, do you know yes. what it does? No, take I, though, know too? Like I, I know that uh, a lot of these worms and things can be killed just by freezing or at much lower temperatures than a lot of bacteria and such. So I assume that generally makes it safe. So unless I'm making sushi out of it, it's probably okay. Does that sound about right? Ye-
2: yeah if you buy a sushi grade first first of all like there's different. there's obviously there's parasites in fish that will infect you, and those are the ones that they get rid of by uh, freezing it so anytime you 're going to buy a sushi grade fish it's been frozen to kill off those parasites right so right. once you're dealing with a sushi grade product you're you're good to go um, with regards to like the worms on a big Piece of codfish let 's say my I have to go research because I have research. my recollection is that those are merely gross and not harmful but um, yeah. Yeah, i 'm not going to swear i 'm not going to tell people that you know on the radio because i haven 't looked into it but um, but I also think that they're, like you said, I think they're probably fairly easy to kill. And that if you're, you know, but the, I, that's why like, I'd be a little worried about doing super low temperature work on a fish that's going to have a lot of parasites. Um, because then, you know you, you know, you might get one of those suckers wriggling out of the plate. And that would be, that would, you know, customers running out, like free meals, you know, it would be, be a nightmare, you know, a huge nightmare. Um, and we've all seen like worms coming out of cod or out of monkfish. I mean, they're just there, you know what I mean? And so like, for instance, the, the famous low temperature cod recipe, extreme low temperature cod recipe, uh, is, uh, by, uh, Juan Roca, uh, from the, uh, the sous vide book that came out a number of years ago in Spanish, which is, you know, like, uh, you know, one of the first books on sous vide, a really good book. Uh, Stas, you still there? I heard it click. Yeah. I think the other guy yeah, yeah. dropped off. All right. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, sorry we have to do this up in Germany. But that, that recipe is uh, famous, but um, it was mistranslated as cod. So people basically said that they, they were heating cod to this extremely low temperature, like 100 Fahrenheit. Uh, and in fact, it was salt cod, where all of the, uh, that was reconstituted salt, salt cod bakalau. And so, you know, all the worms were obviously killed. But anyway, what do you think, Sazi? Is that a good answer?
1: I think that's a good answer, Dave. Too bad we lost the guy. All right. Hopefully that helps.
2: I know. Yeah, hopefully that helps. So, uh, Duncan had a second question, which is he's been trying to learn with cast iron, but he's been having trouble with food sticking intermittently. And he says, as far as he can tell, the pan is seasoned, but sometimes omelets uh, will stick to it and sometimes they won't. Well, I think this. I think I can't see your pan obviously because I'm in Berlin, but the and you're in Sacramento, but. Um, Things can look seasoned, but they're not really seasoned as well as if they had been uh, seasoned for years and years of use. So the the initial seasoning isn't really enough to make something kind of bulletproof, nonstick. First of all, nothing's bulletproof, nonstick. But I think what's probably happening is you probably have a couple of high spots in the pan that can cause adhesion, and then once it adheres, it it adheres pretty well to that point. And so maybe you didn't get a coating of oil uh, over one particular section or it dried out. Or somehow you got adhesion to the pan, and the more you use it, the less and less it's going to stick. Uh, and you know, especially these newer cast iron, they're they're rougher in surface. I tend to find that you know, until you build up a really good season on them, they're not really uh, you know. Even though some people theoretically think that the roughness is going to help you in non-stick uh, phenomenons, I don't. I don't happen to be one of those people who. Who believes it? I mean, I think there's been a lot of discussion on that on the blog. If you look at the blog on the this, I think it's called what to call it, Sazi, like heavy metal, the science yeah. of cast iron or something mm-hmm. like this. Yes. Yeah, uh, I haven't researched it uh, recently, but you know, my my thoughts fresh from the research are, are in that post. If uh, if anyone wants to go back and and look at it, um, Chris Anderson writes in and uh, he says he enjoys the show, which we appreciate, right, Sazi? Yes. We appreciate that. <laughs> and he says, what is the correct ratio in making a simple syrup? Every recipe I find seems to have a different proportion of sugar to water. Uh, it does the dilution depend on the application? Uh, and then and then he, goes, he has a question about the shelf life of the syrup. Uh, should it be stored in the fridge, et cetera, et cetera? Or will that make the sugar crystallize? And he's noticed that when he infuses things into it, like lavender or lemongrass, it tends to last uh, not very long before it starts to mold on the top uh, and the sugar seems to last longer. Can he extend the shelf life, et etc.? et cetera? These are all interesting questions. First of all, let me start by saying that there is no correct... Uh, there's no correct uh, simple syrup recipe. Like, there's all different ratios that you can use, and uh, what's but but the uh, particular recipe isn't going to taste the same as what the writer intended unless you use the same proportions that they asked for. So, uh, I tend it. You know, and we at the school tend to use what's called a, a two to one simple syrup, and, and everyone makes it differently. In a bar in a bar at, uh, place, they tend to make their syrup based on volume because they don't have scales; they have cup measures. So they'll, be, they'll make simple syrup based on volume. Now, luckily, standard American granulated sugar weighs about as close to the same as water on a volume basis. Just lucky. So they they you know a, a weight simple syrup and a uh, and a volume simple syrup are about the same when made with U.S. granulated sugar. Now. Uh, in a bar, they tend to make one-to-one simple syrup because they're not heating it. Even they're using super actually, they're using superfine syrup, which is going to make it sweeter because it's denser. So erase what I just said. But they're using superfine sugar, which which uh, which dissolves very quickly, and they're stirring it because they don't necessarily have a heat source right there, and they want to be able to make their simple syrup without heat. So they tend to make a one-to-one simple syrup. Uh, and they tend to do it by volume, and they tend to, with superfine sugar. So, like, that should be, like, that's, if a bar recipe just says simple syrup one-to-one, that's probably what they mean. Um, now, uh, another reason that bartenders tend to use uh, a lighter simple syrup like that is because it pours a lot faster, and you leave a lot less syrup in the bottom of your jigger. The downside of it is that Uh, that simple syrup also adds a lot more water for an equivalent amount of sweetness. So it can throw off the dilution in recipes, uh, in certain recipes. I tend to prefer to add sugar in the form of sugar and make a denser simple syrup. So when usually, unless I say otherwise, my simple syrup is two to one, two parts sugar to one part water by weight, and then heated until it dissolves and then allowed to cool down. Uh, and when I need it in a hurry, I do a four-part. I do four parts uh, sugar to one part water, heat it until it dissolves, and then I throw ice cubes to chill it down quickly. And, that, and that's how I make it. Now, the more sugar you put in a simple syrup, uh, the... Uh, the more sugar you put in simple syrup, the less chance you're going to get of mold developing. A one-to-one simple syrup is definitely going to mold over time. If you store it in the fridge, it's not going to mold over time. Uh, I don't think. I've never really had them go moldy in the fridge. Um, but um, yeah, then you have to devote storage space to it in the fridge. A two-to-one simple syrup probably won't mold as much. It'll still mold if it's outside, and you keep it in the in the fridge as well. Now, you might get some crystallization in your two-to-one, but you're not going to get that much crystallization in your two-to-one. I wouldn't worry about it so much. Um, Now, when you're infusing a syrup, the question uh, whether or not, you know, what kind of shelf life you're going to get out of it, a lot depends on... And by the way, if you have to leave your simple syrup out uh, because, you know, whatever, you don't have free space or whatever, if you're going to keep it for a long period of time, if you... You know, once a week, just you know, bring it up almost to the boil and let it drop down again. You're going to you're going to kill the mold in it, and you get to extend the shelf life again because it's not going to get unsafe on you. Now, when you're doing an infusion, of something uh, you know, like an herb or whatnot, you're probably getting more uh water And it. Also depends if you're going to boil the the thing that you're infusing with the with the sugar, right? Then. Uh, You know, you might be killing some stuff into it, but you're probably introducing some some spores and whatnot, some mold into it. And um, you're probably also giving it more of a substrate to act on. So That might be one of the reasons that you're getting more spoilage. I haven't... um research any specific you know mold inhibitors, although that's an interesting question, maybe we should look into it Stasi, but uh, I think you're going to definitely increase the life of those things by putting them in the fridge and I don't think that any crystallization, uh, definitely not on a one-to-one and even on a two-to-one, I've had two-to-one in my fridge for months and you know you'll get a couple of crystals around the bottom of it but not a huge huge deal um so in terms of consistency i, I, I don't think there's a best or a worst there's what fits your cooking style best we have both one-to-one and two-to-one around it's all about being consistent from uh time to time um right we need to take a break Dave. they're telling me oh all right so we're taking a break coming back with the last segment of cooking issues you still have time to call in Okay, Dave, you're on. Dave. All right. Welcome back to Cooking Issues. Uh, doing it to you in two times. We're in Berlin and we're in New York. Uh, so, some time to call in. What's the number again? 718-497-2128. 718-497-2128. So uh, Jay wrote us and asked us a question about uh, protein in flowers and he. Uh, any- uh, he or she, who is Jay, referenced uh, McGee, Harold McGee, and so rather than answer this question, I'm just telling you Jay, I'm going to wait because Harold McGee's actually going to come and teach a class in less than two weeks. Uh, what are the dates again, Natasha?
1: October 21st and 22nd. That's a Thursday and Friday.
2: Right, so Harold McGee is actually coming to the French Culinary all day, all day, two-day class He's coming to teach the Harold McGee class. We'll probably put something up on the blog uh, in advance of it. Uh, But anyway, I'm going to be spending some quality time with him. And you can, too, if you want. There are still spots. Uh, Go to the uh, FCI website, frenchculinary.com, and look for the Harold McGee lecture series. But uh, I'm going to spend some quality time with him. And he is really up on uh, these kinds of things and has done a lot of research. So, Nastasha, I'm going to put the... The, the protein question, uh, flour protein question, down as a whole, because I want to give Jay a better answer okay. uh, when we're hanging with McGee. Okay. Um, all right, so um, now uh, we have a question. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Uh, and the thing is, uh, when I cook for my this is uh, Teddy Teddy Devico writes in and says, when I cook for my family, my dad cannot eat salt or any food that contains salt, so I have to cook salt uh, cook well, without salt for him. I still cook for the rest of my family with salt. He does not believe that salt can make food drastically better, but I tell him it does. Why does salt make food taste better? Uh, And is there any way to make food taste good without salt? Uh, And and by the way, Teddy does not think it is possible. Uh, So uh, uh, you're right. It is not possible. Uh, It it turns out that uh, salt, and I don't know whether your dad uh dislike salt or whether or not he ha- is you know, one of the you know few people that is actually sensitive to salt from a, a blood pressure uh situation but i mean salt sodium chloride is uh is uh, 100% necessary to uh your survival as a human being okay so you know your neurons don't work without sodium like you know we we don't work there is no life uh for us without sodium and we don't make it ourselves we we have to take it in in fact mammals uh, and other things, even humans. Although there's some controversy about how it works, because uh, no, there's some controversy. But we have what's called salt appetite. So other than thirst, where you're like, I'm thirsty, I need liquid. The only other thing that works that way is salt. Where there's like you have a salt uh, appetite. At least mammals do. Whether or not humans have the same kind of salt uh, salt thing that that uh, primates do is you know up for question. So salt is definitely something you need. But you don't necessarily need to sprinkle salt on things because food that you eat naturally contains uh, more or less salt, depending on what it is naturally in the product. Meats have a certain amount of salt in them uh, because they come from animals, and animals contain sodium. Um, but you know, natural mineral waters contain sometimes a good bit of salt in you know, them. Depending on which one you choose, How there's plants that grow, like uh, for instance, uh, samphire or sea beans, grows on the on the seashore, and it has so much salt in it that I don't I don't even need to add salt to my salads when I make it with that. And I like salt a lot. Uh, so you know, definitely, um, you know, you're always consuming salt. Uh, it's just a question of whether or not you add salt. So then the question is, well. Um, you know, do you, do you need to add salt to food? And for me, yes. You know, you do. So for instance, the classic food that, that sucks without salt is bread, right? And so, you know, everyone in the world loves Tuscan cuisine, myself included. I love it. Except for the bread, it's horrible. Right, Stasi? Come on, the bread's horrible. No, we've had, dis- why? No, no,
1: we've had this discussion. Yes. I don't mind it. I like the
2: sprinkles. It's horrible. All right. But Stasi thinks that you can sprinkle salt on Tuscan bread and all of a sudden make it real bread. Yes. I completely disagree because I have baked breads where you accidentally forget to put the salt in. How many out there this happened to you? You forget to put the salt in, and then you pray that you can make it better by adding salt. Here's why you can't. Because first of all, the salt's not throughout the dough, and second of all, the salt actually affects the texture because it affects the way the gluten works. And so you'll notice that the crust on a, on a saltless bread, the reason Tuscan bread looks like crap on the outside, it's that sallow-looking crust, is because they don't have salt. And the reason the texture is not as good is because they don't have salt. And the reason it doesn't taste good is because, can you guess why, Nastasha?
1: It doesn't have salt.
2: Right, because it doesn't have salt. Uh, and you can't fix those problems just by sprinkling salt uh, on, the, on the outside. That's like rolling a turd in sequins. You know what I mean? It just doesn't work. Um, now, uh, it, you know, so another place where salt is, you know, uh, often useful, not just from a taste standpoint, is with meats because salt actually increases the uh, water-binding capacity of meat. So, the, uh, you know, when you brine something, you're actually ensuring that it's going to be juicier by... Uh, Applying some salt to it uh, beforehand, so it's actually performing a functional characteristic there. Now, the vast majority of the of the you know huge sodium intake. By the way, like our grand great grandparents' generation ate a boatload more salt than we do because they had to eat everything preserved or had to eat more preserved things than we do. And in fact, they were more heavily salted. Preserved meats were more heavily salted in the old days than they are now because now uh, we have uh, refrigeration. I just read a a scholarly paper. I forget what it is. I can't reference it. But they said that nothing more drastic. Reduce the salt intake of the population uh, in general than the, than the refrigerator because now all of a sudden we didn't need to salt anymore. So this a modern idea that we consume so much more salt now because of processed foods in quotes than, than we used to. It's absurd because salt used to be like everywhere. Everything was salted down to preserve it, uh, you know, prior to the advent of uh, refrigeration. So, uh, so we love salt because we need it. It also makes things taste. Delicious, you know. So salt affects. Uh, first of all, you don't need to salt a lot. It's not you don't need to make something salty to have the salt uh, have a bene- beneficial effect. Like for instance, a little bit of salt in a drink, even if you can't taste the salt, it's going to round out uh, the flavors. It changes your perception of aroma. So when you add uh, salt to a broth, it's actually changing the aroma of the broth because it alters. Uh, the way the volatiles are basically, like the the amount of them they are captured, allows things to re- the release come off, and you actually get a stronger impact of volatiles in the aroma. Uh, you know, it tends to be synergistic, so it makes other things taste better. Uh, without even necessarily having the perception of salt. And they tried to get around that by adding uh, things like MSG, which can also increase the palatability of something without adding a lot more salt. Although it, uh, gram per gram, MSG adds uh, about one-third the sodium that uh, salt does because we usually get monosodium mono glutamate. It doesn't add as much salt per gram as uh, uh, sorry, as much sodium per gram as salt does, and it's the sodium people are worried about. By the way, most of the flavor comes from the sodium. The chloride is kind of usually along for the ride, right? Um, so, uh, but the the other thing about MSG, even though it does have sodium, you typically would use a lot less MSG than you would use salt because it's more potent. Um, so, anyway, I mean, it's a long way. I don't know whether I've... T- Stasi, you. I totally answer this question? I mean, I've kind of, well, like... But I think, but I think it all husband. depends,
1: yeah, what, what's, what's wrong with his dad, right? Like, if for health reasons yeah. or if he just doesn't like
2: salt, but... Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean there's got to be some people that don't like salt. There's only, like, one or two groups of people... In the world that are known to not add any salt, I always forget what they are. It's probably like, it's probably like some like like Inuit culture or something like that. There's, but again, they're eating like you know whale meat out of the out of the ocean. Like, and I, don't, I don't even remember whether it's Inuit. I just made that up. But there's very few cultures in the world that don't use salt, and it's because this stuff tastes good. You know what I mean? Um, and maybe uh, I'll do some more research on it and talk about it at at a, a later point. And he says on another note, what do I think of uh, Grant Agus's aviary bar? Grant Akins, uh, as most of the readers will know, is the chef at uh, Alinea, which is a, a very, very fine restaurant. I've eaten there twice. Had an extraordinary meal from out there. I have not been to the bar. Is it open yet? You know? I have no idea. No. I do not know if it's open. I uh, hear they've had some YouTube videos up, so maybe, maybe they are. But I'm, I'm sure whatever Grant does is going to be good, but I just haven't uh, tried it yet. Now, uh yeah, one more question from who's this one? Steve. Uh and by the way, Steve uh, says, PS thanks for talking about the issues of tall cooks. Uh we're trying to get uh Mark Ladner, right? He won't, Natasha he won't, uh, it. he won't he
1: won't
2: talk on he, here. Well maybe we'll I'll just get his why don't you get his comments separately and we'll just say what he said. Okay about yeah, that.
1: That's
2: good. Yeah. So yeah, so we, we, can, uh, we can we can do that. Uh, but he's basically uh, he's a he's a physicist and he's interested in ice. And he was just talking about something really cool, which is he makes spherical lenses out of ice so that he can start fires outside. That's pretty cool, right? Yeah. Yeah. So basically, you know, he says that you know you can basically with your hands just take a block of ice and smooth it out. Uh, you know, you know, heating it to make a, a decent enough sphere to light a fire. Uh, using it, which is, I, I think that's pretty cool. I'd like to try that. Um, but so he's wondering about the, the problems of making clear ice because you need be clear ice to make these these lenses. Uh, and he, um, you know, he's talking about the difficulties in it. And, and have we talked about clear ice on the radio at all, Stassi, or not?
1: I feel like we did, or maybe you touched on it a little bit, but not not in depth.
2: Yeah. So basically, uh, back in the day, uh, prior to you know uh, mechanical refrigeration. Most ice that uh, was used in, uh, in restaurants, bars, or in ice houses was harvested ice. that was harvested from uh, lakes and rivers in the wintertime. was sawn out in big blocks and then kept in huge insulated ice houses for use throughout the year. Now, the benefit of this kind of ice is uh, that it's formed in thin layers, as you know, Steve mentioned. I mean, he knows much better than I do because he's a uh, physicist, but it forms in thin layers and um, what happens when it's forming in thin layers is that it, uh, the impurities in it, gas, and any other actual dissolved impurities, don't get integrated into the uh, crystal structure, the crystal matrix of the ice. So when you're freezing in your, in your, in your freezer, here's what happens. You have an ice cube tray, it starts to freeze on the bottom, the impurities are getting concentrated in the center as as are the dissolved gases. And then at a certain point the top of your ice cube freezes over and then the inside, first of all, expands as it freezes, because ice expands as it freezes, and all the impurities are there and the gas is there and you have a big like messy, you know, cloudy, you know, ball in the middle of your ice cube. You know what I'm talking about, right,
1: Ston? Right, right, yes.
2: Yeah, right. So, so that's what's happening. So lakes in lakes, that doesn't happen because you're depositing thin layers that are constantly being washed and the layers are, are built up and they're totally clear. And as Steve points out that's the same way icicles are formed, which is why icicles are also clear. So I guess you can maybe make a, a good good lens out of that. The problem with doing it at home is, uh, is that it's just not easy. Even just degassing your ice cube trays in a vacuum machine isn't going to necessarily, it's not going to give you clear ice because the top will freeze over. And as the inside expands and breaks the crystal structure and reforms, you'll get uh, parts that are, that are cloudy. Uh, also, um, it's just difficult. Or... or Using distilled water won't solve the problem. The only way to really solve it is the way that the Climb Bell, Bell is the ice uh, manufacturers that make the machines for ice carvers, right? So ice, ice carvers require clear ice. Uh, and so uh, bartenders have started using this, what they call it Climb Bell ice, which is very clear, and it basically works like a lake upside down. They make sure that the freezing happens from the bottom of the cube up, and they keep the water circulating on the top so that the top can't freeze over. And as it's built up slowly over the course of a day or so, because it takes, I uh, forget, like between 24 and 48 hours to freeze one of these 200-pound blocks in the climb belt, like, as it's freezing slowly up, none of the impurities are incorporated, and they're concentrated in the water that's on top. And at the end, they just drain that, uh, the, the impure crappy water off the top, and they're left with a block of perfectly pure crystal ice. And so that's how it's made. Now, it's difficult to do at home, um, you know, unless you have, like, an anti-griddle and, you know, a chest freezer. But it's not something you can just kind of do in your freezer. But uh, the good news is is that, uh, you know, clear ice looks amazing, and it's the only one that you can really carve well because it, it's very easy to carve and it doesn't shatter. But it's not really going to make your drink taste better. So that's the good news. Anyway, Stasi, how are we doing on time?
1: We're doing fine. I think we have, like, two minutes left, so... Say something. We have great.
2: two minutes left. Yeah. All right. So, so uh, I will. You know relay uh, what it takes to get stopped in the Düsseldorf airport in between flights and have basically a full body cavity search. So, <laughs> no way, uh, really? So, yeah, don't, yeah, yeah. so don't leave your job at a cooking school after you do a demo with your folding box cutter. Which, by the way, like everyone in the world should have a folding box cutter in their pocket at all times. Like, in fact, the thing I hate most about traveling is that I can't have my folding box cutter with me unless I know where I can get blades for it. So anyway, I go to JFK which is our airport in New York, I take the box cutter out of my pocket and I uh, discard the blade and put the empty box cutter, Sans blade, back in my pocket because I don't feel like I'm a human being unless I have a box cutter in my pocket, right? So the. And, you know, this probably says something bad about security in New York. I showed them the empty box cutter. I'm like, hey, it's a box cutter without a knife. What's the problem? Right? They're like, hey, right, what's the problem? Let me through. I show up in Germany in Düsseldorf, and I have to go through security again. I show them, I was like, you know, escape kind Messer. you know, there's no, no knife in there, right? But then they, took, they literally took apart everything, including my shoes, everything I owned, took everything apart to look to see whether I had stashed a blade somewhere oh my with my God. box cutter. And then they're looking through it, and they see a box that I brought. So I'm doing a cocktail demonstration here, where we're testing uh, temperature, and I'm doing basically a recap <laughs> oh, of no. of the tales of the cocktail that I did with Ebbing Clem. And you can go see that on our blog about the cocktail science post. So he finds this box with all these wires coming out of it, and he, and, and he's, uh, he's looking at me a little more than cross-eyed. And then and my German, by the way, is not so good. And then uh, after that. He uh, he finds a uh, I'm you know studying organic chemistry again boning up on it and I have a, a chemical model set in my thing and he sees he sees chemistry wires and a dude with a box cutter who I'm clearly disheveled you know from my flight and so that's what it takes that's what it takes to basically you know get the full smack down in the Dusseldorf airport so this has been your uh, your your Intercontinental Cooking (laughs) Issues episode. Uh, Thanks to Heritage Radio for making it happen. Uh, Thanks to Acme Fish. Thank you, Nastasha, and we'll see you next week.